Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. What is the good life? What is happiness? Should Christians pursue happiness? How should we think about happiness in our daily lives? That's why I'm really excited to have our special guest, Dr. Derwin Gray, talking about his brand new book, The Good Life, with us. But a little bit about Dr. Gray. He's the founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational mission-shaped community in Indian Land, South Carolina. Dr. Gray met his wife, Vicki, at Brigham Young University, BYU. They've been married since 1992 and have two adult children. And after graduating from BYU, he played professional football in the NFL for five years with the Indianapolis Colts and the Carolina Panthers. In 2008, Gray graduated from Southern Evangelical Seminary with a Master of Divinity with a concentration in apologetics, so definitely a kindred spirit there. And while there, he was mentored by renowned theologian and philosopher Dr. Norman Geisler, which is one of my heroes as well. And in 2018, Gray received his Doctor of Ministry in New Testament in Context at Northern Seminary under Dr. Scott McKnight. He's the author of several books, including Hero, Unleashing God's Power in a Man's Heart, Limitless Life, and also Crazy Grace for Crazy Times Bible Study, as well as The High Definition Leader and the book we're going to be talking about today, The Good Life. So, Dr. Gray, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be with you. Uh, As you were reading through the bio, I was just thankful for people like Dr. Geisler and people like Scott McKnight who have been able to pour into me and uh, dearly miss Dr. Geisler. So just, just thankful to be with you. Absolutely. No, and and I love it. I love what you're doing. Uh, just, you know, some personal connection even a few weeks ago, really enjoyed as a family watching one of your sermons talking about fear. And I love your illustration of when fear comes knocking at the door <laughs> just to tell, you know, hey, Jesus, somebody's at the door for you. You, you got to get that. And I just, I thought that yeah. was such a great illustration. And so thanks for all that you're doing, especially during these times right now, helping people navigate this well. Well, thank you very much. All right, well, let's talk about your brand new book, The Good Life. What prompted you to write it? You know, here at Impact 360, we've, we've studied the next generation. We work on research around uh, Gen Z, and, and 51% of Gen Z says the goal of life is to be happy. And so a lot of people equate the good life and happiness, but, but talk about why it is that you wanted to write this book right now. Yeah, so back in 2015, as I was counseling Christians conversation with unbelievers, millennials, Gen Z, boomers, I was finding whether people were Christian or unchristian that they were not happy. And so I said, well, let's go to Jesus and see what he has to say. And hiding in plain sight at the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with the what we call the Beatitudes, you know, eight characteristics, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes through eight different characteristics. Well, the word blessed in the Greek language, makaros, literally means happy. And so Jesus is inviting people to experience happiness, but it's not a happiness based on the things that we think will make us happy. So for most Americans, most people in the world, Christians, non-Christian, we think that happiness is a good happening takes place. I, I get a raise. I 
get some money. I get into the college I want to get into. And all those things are a form of happiness, but there's a deeper and more beautiful happiness that Jesus is inviting us into. And in essence, happiness is about becoming who God has created you to be. And so when you look at the characteristics of the Beatitude, they mirror and reflect the very life of Jesus. And so when Jesus is inviting people into happiness, he's actually inviting them into holiness. Holiness and happiness are two sides of the same coin. So instead of good things perpetually happening to us, Jesus wants to make us good. And so therefore our happiness is not contingent upon situations or circumstances. It's rooted and grounded in the eternal love of God himself as he's shaping us the way a potter shapes clay. I love that. And I, and I want to come back to a minute, that distinction where you talked about happiness and holiness are two sides of the same coin in a minute. But how does this approach, this, this book, differ from maybe other books that people might find in a bookstore or on Amazon that, that deal with the topic of happiness, whether that's from a Christian perspective or a secular perspective? Well, this is what I can say is that oftentimes the Beatitudes are overlooked. Every writer writes from the perspective of their life. And so as a person who has gone from rags to riches, from being unknown to being famous, being an NFL player, to having all the stuff that you're supposed to have, but yet and still the external success cannot fix an internal, eternal problem. And so also I think what I do well in the book is I take the reader back to Jesus's original world on his terms, in his way. And it's like we're teleported back in time so that we can live in our time. But it's a living that's not just surviving, it's a living that is thriving. And we begin to see that when we lose our lives in Christ, we begin to find our true life. So often as Christians, we try to invite Jesus into our story. But the reality is, Jesus invites us into his redemptive story. And so our measure and beliefs about happiness begins to change as we begin to understand what true life-giving happiness is. That's awesome. You know, I know this connects very personally uh, with your story, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about, you know, even your childhood and your drive to succeed and find happiness and kind of share a little bit about how that story kind of evolved and how you came to pursue this in your own life. Yeah, so, you know, um, I grew up on the west side of San Antonio, uh, Texas, an impoverished area. My mom was 16 when she was pregnant with me. My dad was 18. Both of them struggled with various issues. So my grandmother primarily raised me. I came from a toxic, chaotic environment, but I thought that was normal. I thought gang violence was normal. I've seen the just what alcoholism can do, what domestic violence can do, what drug abuse can do just came from a rough, rough childhood. And so at age 13, football for me was not only something I loved, but I saw it as a vehicle that would take me out of where I was. And so I worked really hard to be a great football player so that I could get the good life. I wanted to escape my environment. I didn't grow up in church, didn't really own a Bible. And so I took a football scholarship to Brigham Young primarily because it was as far away from Texas as I could get. Hmm. Uh, I was going to play for a great coach. 
but little did I know that I would meet my wife to be the second semester of my freshman year. And I ended up having a legendary career at BYU, leaving as one of the best to ever have played there. And then I get drafted to the NFL. And so for me, that was like heaven, like, okay, now it's going to be great. And actually things got worse. I thought money would fix my family's problems, but it seems like it made it worse. It was never enough. I could never do enough. By my third year in the NFL, I'm a team captain. I've got the wife. I've got the car. I've got everything I'm supposed to have. But those external things couldn't give me peace. It couldn't give me forgiveness for things that I had done. It couldn't allow me to forgive people who've hurt me. I couldn't love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. I lived with incredible fear of one day I'm not going to be a football player anymore. Who will I be then? I'll just be a dumb football player that's no use to anybody. And so I had all of this fear, this existential turmoil that was going on. But by God's grace, when I got drafted to the Colts, I had a teammate, his name was Steve Grant, but his nickname was the Naked Preacher. Every day <laughs> after practice, he would, he would take a shower, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist, and he'd get his Bible. And he'd ask my teammates, do you know Jesus? And I asked the veteran on the team, yo, man, what's up with the half-naked black man walking around <laughs> talking about, do you know Jesus? They said, don't pay no attention to him. That's the naked preacher. And so over a five-year process from 1993 to 1997, I watched him embody the gospel faithfully. I listened to him. And on August 2nd, 1997, it was uh, my fifth year in the NFL training camp at a place called Anderson, Indiana at Anderson College. And after lunch, it was like I just had this chasm in my soul. And I got to my dorm room and I called my wife and I said, I want to be committed to Jesus. I, or I said, I want to be committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And at that moment, like I felt a bodily change, a bodily reaction. And for the first time in my life, like I knew that I was loved but it was a love with no strings attached. It, it wasn't based out of, it wasn't based out of how fast I could run, how good I was at football. It wasn't based in any of those things. And it was a love that saw everything that I'd ever done, yet God still loved me. And so I was just overwhelmed with God's grace and God's mercy. And my life hadn't been the same since. I love him more each and every day. I love it. I love that powerful story. And just, just the reminder of people's faithful influence over time. And, you know, the, the naked preacher, you know, just showing up and, and you watching his life and all of that. And then over time had the opportunity to share that. And then the transformation that, that came from that. What, what were those initial times like? Was your wife, was she a believer at, at first? Or what was the dynamics of that in that journey? Was, did you guys kind of both begin to take your faith seriously in Jesus about the same time? Or, or, you know, kind of what were those dynamics like? Yeah, so she had come to faith about six months before me. There was a woman at her job that she would come back home and say, you know, this woman is a really good Christian. And one day over coffee, she asked my wife, she said, are you a Christian? And my wife was like, well, yeah, you know, I believe in God. And the woman, her name was Karen. She looked at my wife and said, well, being a Christian means this, that you recognize that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he rose again, that he is Lord. And by faith in him, 
not only will you receive forgiveness of sins, but you'll be able to receive his resurrection life and become a part of his family. And my wife was kind of like, oh, okay. And a little bit time after that, we were playing an away game with the New England Patriots. The Colts were playing against them. And she went to a church and the choir was behind the congregation and the, and the words. And he died for me. They sang in unison. And it like hit my wife's heart like an arrow. And she just, she literally ran out of the church weeping and crying with the thought of Jesus Christ died for me. So she was born again and really didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just know for those six months, it was like, man, she's changed. Like she wants to read the Bible. She's kinder. Like there was so much going on. So yeah, in essence, we, we began our journey together for sure. Wow, that's all. That's wonderful. I love how God just works and brings all that stuff and always working by his spirit in the background. That's so encouraging to hear. You know, as, as some people maybe listen to this right now, they hear your story and, and you know, you, you're a football player in the NFL pursuing these things. And you're like, hey, it, it didn't satisfy. It was empty. Why do you think it is that all of us, you know, it seems to be a deeply human thing where we think, well, you know, I need to find those things for myself, you know, the, the affluence or the success or the affirmation or, or whatever those things are. Why is it so difficult for us not to learn from other people's story? And I guess go, Hey, well, I need to, I need to run that path down myself and see if that really is going to make me happy. Why, why do you think that is? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I think there's something about a person coming to the end of themselves before they'll take hold of the nail pierced hands of Christ. Like, like mm. grace, grace is only effective on the broken, the vulnerable and those who can't. A lot of times we haven't gotten to the place to where our self-reliance is utterly worn out. You know, grace means God does for you what you could never do. A part of being made in the image of God is we want to be God. And as a result of wanting to be God, it's kind of like, well, Jesus, you do your part and I'll do my part. No, Jesus does all of it. Our role is simply to trust in him to accomplish the good work he wants to do in us and through us. And then an, another thing too is Jesus, the father and the spirit, like you literally can't see, right? But you can see a house, you can see a car, you can see money. In other words, we exchange the uncreated creator for created things. We worship things that should be used and we use God who should be worshiped hmm. and we have to reverse the order. So, so kind of the way I like to say it is, so I'm a fan of like movies with zombies in it. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I just like the survival theme of it. And what is a zombie? A zombie is a living dead thing. And oftentimes we are spiritually zombies wanting to get satisfaction out of materialistic things because we think that's going to make us alive. But the reality is Jesus makes us alive and then we can appreciate those things. So like having money or fame or success or a house and a car isn't evil. It only becomes evil when we try to replace Jesus with those things instead of allowing Jesus to express his life through our lives and to steward those things. Hmm. I love it. That's so good. That's so good. And it's such, it's, it's a lesson. It seems like we just have to keep preaching to ourselves daily to remind ourselves so that we don't get things out, out of order. 
I love it. You know, early on in your book, you say you make a statement that I love, and I'd love for you to expound on a little bit because it might be surprising to people even listening to this podcast. You say that Jesus of Nazareth was the happiest person to have ever lived, and some people yeah. might go, "Hey, what what do you mean by that?" Like, t- tell me tell me more about what you have in mind there. Yeah, Jesus was incredibly happy. Like when you look at his life, like, so we have to redefine happiness. We think that happiness is perpetually like, I feel good. No, happiness is the assurance that you are in the will of God. And regardless of what happens, he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But when you look at Jesus, think about how happy he was when lepers with a single touch became clean. Hmm. Think about how happy he was when Matthew, the tax collector, got saved and all of his tax collector friends came to the house and Jesus could share the gospel with them. Think, of, think about how happy he was, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy of the cross. Like what? The joy of the cross? Hmm. Like, how could you be happy about a Roman cross? Well, he's happy about the people who are going to be redeemed. Happiness is not contrary to difficulty and tension and trials. Happiness is understanding you're in God's will and you're being shaped into a person who becomes a living sacrifice, as Romans 12, 2 says. Like, we have to get rid of this notion that we're always smiling, whereas I say happiness is having not confidence, but Godfidence, that you're walking in God's will, and God's will is not mysterious. Here's God's will. Love the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, and then love your neighbors. you love yourself. That's God's will. Like, people go, Derwin, what does God want me to do? I'm like, well, <laughs> love God, love self, love neighbor. No, my job. I'm like, I don't know. What are you good at? Can you drive a school bus? Drive a school bus. Can you fly an airplane? Be a pilot. Like your career is not your calling. Let me say that again. And I hope they're Christian parents listening. Your career is not your calling. Your career is how you express your calling. Every Christian is called to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and love their neighbors. They love themselves and go make disciples of every single person on planet earth. That is our calling. Mm-hmm. Our career is the vehicle, how that calling is expressed. I love it. I love it. You know, even, even now, you know, here at impact 360, we have our fellows experience for nine months. We got 18 to 20 year olds who are with us. We're about to launch them out and to go make disciples. And I love that picture of, you know, what is God's will? Cause we have conversations about it and sometimes, well, where should I go to college and where should I, you know, who should I go out with and all that? It's like, well, if they get right, what you talked about at the very beginning, then the other, God's going to go with you and you're going to become more like Jesus and you can figure that stuff out as you go. And, and that's, what's so important about all that. And that's why I'm, you know, selfishly, I'm really looking forward to you being with us and our students in the fall get to teach them, which is going to be so exciting on this concept as well. But it's just so important to see God's will as connected to this and in living in, in cooperation with that. So I love that theme. Mm-hmm. And there's so many good things in this book, by the way. You know, I'm, I'm interviewing Dr. Derwin Gray on his brand new book, The Good Life. Definitely encourage you to check it out. It's in the show notes. You can check out a link to that. Definitely pick up a copy of that book. But, you know, there's so much good stuff. Like, I love your paraphrases you put in here and putting things in your own words, you know, and the conviction that comes from that. But was there, you know, as you were going through the Beatitudes, 
I'll ask you two questions. One is, was there a favorite beatitude that you really just resonated with? Let's start with that one first. Oh gosh, man, that's a hard question, bro. <laughs> but what I would what I would say is probably my favorite one was the most difficult one to write. And that was blessed or happy are the peacemakers for they will be called sons and daughters of God. And we live in a culture in America, and I'm speaking specifically to Christians and in the church, is that we're actually not peacemakers. We are actually creating more division ethnically, politically, across the social economic barriers as well. And so that chapter, I start with the way we make peace is understanding that Jesus himself made peace with us. As Romans 5.10 says, we are literally enemies of God. But then Jesus goes to the cross for us enemies to make us friends, to turn foes into family. And that's why in Matthew 5.48, he says, but I tell you, you know, pray for those who persecute you and to love your enemies. Wow. We live in a world now where as Christians, like we put up people who are disrespectful in the public political square. And mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it is just fascinating to see how we as evangelicals somehow have lost the idea of, man, we follow the Prince of Peace, therefore we should be peacemakers. And so it was my favorite chapter, but it was the hardest chapter because a lot of my uh, white Christian brothers and sisters don't want to talk about racism. And the reality is a problem doesn't go away if you don't talk about it. Like we talk about abortion because we want it to end. Mm -hmm. And in the church, it's important for us to understand that Jesus's kingdom is every nation, tribe, and tongue, and we're called to be one in Christ. And so what hurts a brother or sister who doesn't look like me ethnically or culturally or class-wise, their problem should be my problem too, because we're in the same family. And often the black community has experienced, whether if it's unarmed uh, black men being shot, a lot of times it's been silence from our white brothers and sisters. And we're saying, aren't we family? Like, doesn't family care about each other? And so that has really been difficult the last four years. And so in the book, I really talk about how the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Jesus is speaking to Jews. Samaritans and Jews had a 400-year blood feud and hatred. And the idea that a Levite and a priest would walk past a Jewish man on the road and not touch him They had come from Jerusalem, so there was no need for them to worry about being unclean, but yet they walk past him. But a Samaritan comes and not only touches the bloody, beaten Jewish man, he puts him on his horse, he puts wine, he puts oil on him. Wine takes care of the infection. Oil makes the wound soft. And then he puts him up in a inn and pays for it. He pays 14 days of wages for someone who should be an enemy. And Jesus says, now that's what it looks like to love your neighbor. Hmm. And in the church today, oh my gosh, like man, Facebook and social media from Christians makes me sad. And I know it breaks the Lord's heart. So, so let me say this very uh, uh, firmly. I believe that cable TV news has discipled a lot of Christians better than pastors have. 
because we see things through a political lens instead of through a gospel lens. And what I'm saying is we're not the party of the elephant. We're not the party of the donkey. We're the party of the Lamb of God, and his name is Jesus, and it's his ethics. And he says this, if you want to know if someone is my brother or sister, if you want to know if someone belongs to my father, they are peacemakers. And so I give specific examples and practically how to do that. So what I do is I give the theological, I give a picture of it, then I give practical examples. So that was my favorite chapter to write, but it was the hardest chapter to write because I know there's going to be pushback like, well, Derwin just preached the gospel. And it's, a, it's amazing how people who've never been oppressed by systemic injustice are the first ones to say, just preach the gospel. Yeah, you know, and say, and say more about that, like, because I, I love in this chapter, you know, the, the gospel is that, you know, the beginning of that relationship, the reconciliation of God on our behalf, and it has implications for everything, which you develop in the, like, in this chapter on a theology of, of ethnic reconciliation, as you put it. You know, what would be, yeah. you, even, you even talk about that, like, how, connect those dots for people that aren't thinking about those things as naturally in those terms, which is so important. Yeah, so the first thing that I would say is we have to read Jesus afresh. And whenever you see Gentile in the Bible, circle it. Jews and Gentiles, read Acts chapter 10. Peter gives how the majority of Jews felt about Gentiles. He, he says, we considered you unclean. You guys were idolaters, but now I know that God is not partial towards anyone. So sadly, we've allowed a racialized culture to just white out the ethnic reconciliation throughout the New Testament. And so I had one time someone sent me an email and they said, Derwin, don't talk about race in the Bible. So I sent them an email back and I said, okay, well, uh, the Israelites were not slaves in Egypt. They didn't have to deal with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Zebuvites. They didn't get into captivity by the Babylonians. And then they were not dominated by the Romans. And in the book of Revelation, let's don't talk about every nation, tribe, and tongue. And by the way, Jesus is no longer Jewish, so what are we dealing with, Martians? If we get rid of ethnicity from the Bible, we get rid of the Bible. And so chapter 5 really introduces people to, wow, you mean that as I become a peacemaker, it brings happiness? Uh, let me give an example of what I mean about, oh gosh, about uh, probably eight years ago now. I'm preaching, and I noticed this white guy in his 30s running down the aisle towards me. I see he's crying, and as he gets closer, I see uh, some snot in his nose. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can hit him with a right cross if he's <laughs> trying to threaten me, but I don't want his snot on me. But before I knew it, he grabbed me and hugged me, and was just crying. I don't know where his snot went, probably on, on me, but let's not talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> and as he's crying, he goes, my goodness, I can't even believe it. I'm in church. And he goes, and you're black. I don't even like black people, but I want Jesus. I want to be saved. And so, <laughs> so this guy would not come with his girlfriend, who, by the way, had gotten out of prison a year earlier, who was a former drug addict, and he was a drug addict as well. He wouldn't come because she was like, yeah, my pastor's black. And he was like, man, I don't want to go to that church to see him shucking, juking, and jiving. I still don't know what that means today, but I'm glad he came. <laughs> well, make a long story really, really short. They were not married, so we get them discipled. 
we're raising them up, we're training, they're serving in our church, and they're, they're like, you know, we need, to, we need to get married. And so she asked me, would you walk me down the aisle because my father disowned me when I was 16. And so she's wearing blue jeans, a white top, cut off, and you can see her arm tat, and I'm walking her down the aisle, and there he is just weeping and crying, and so I get him up there, I switch roles, and I go to the pulpit and I say, uh, who gives this woman away? And then I run back to her, grab her arm and say, I do. And so it's every, everybody's laughing. And his tears have changed. His tears used to be one of a racist, and now his tears became that of a gracist. Hmm. And you're talking about happy? That made me very happy. And it wasn't, I'm happy now thinking about it because it changed me. Happiness changes us and moves us towards Jesus. Hmm. That's the good life, right? That's the good <laughs> life, bro. And seeing that happen, you know, I love, I love those stories. I love the, the candor with which you're speaking because it's so important. You know, I love this phrase, and I've heard you say it before, um, and, and I just really resonate with it. It said, as God's family, we are not colorblind. We are color blessed. We are a diverse and beautiful community of siblings. And I love that because I, I think that picture, and I think sometimes well-meaning people use that colorblind language because they're trying to yeah. look beyond, you know, just simple differences or, you know, some of those kind of things to beyond it. But I love what you're getting at because the Bible doesn't, is not colorblind as you talk about. It just talks about this color blessed picture of this diverse and beautiful community of siblings that, that God is saving and making become more like Jesus. And I love that picture because that's an application of the good life. And that's so, so cool to hear you share about that. And I love what you're doing at your church and leading in that way, Transformation Church, that I encourage people to check that out as well. But maybe share one more story of something just practically that you've seen happening there as you've tried to lead in this way, in a multi-ethnic way, in a multi-generational way, the good life being applied in your context there. Oh, yeah, man. Gosh, they've got so many stories. But one I'll share is, is this. So Charlotte had a riot and protest after a black man was shot. Now, the difference is he was armed and he was wrong, and the officer who shot him was black, and he actually was a part of our church for a little while. But at that time, the climate in America was just waiting to just boil over. So at that point, the facts didn't matter. But one of the things that I think that has helped our congregation, particularly the Caucasians in our congregation, we're probably 55% white, and then everything else after that is I brought in a judge, a police captain, and a young African-American man who protested in Charlotte when the black man was shot. And we were able to have a very, very candid gospel-centered conversation because I don't expect non-Christians to be peacemakers like Christians, but all four of us on stage were Christians. And so I think what happened was for the Caucasian people in our congregation, it was like, oh my gosh, like this stuff does happen. And then for the young African-American man, he goes, wow, so here's a white police captain that, that really cares. So oftentimes we don't talk to each other. We talk at each other. We don't, hmm. we don't listen to understand. We listen to rebuff. And so seek to understand 
before being understood. And when you see each other as family and when you care about what happens to your brothers and sisters, it makes a difference. Also, one of the things that we've seen is that when white families have adopted Latino or African-American children, they'll come to me and go, Pastor, I never knew. And, you know, I'll have empathy for them, but then I'll say, the black community's been telling you. We've, we've, we've been saying it. You know, like I've gotten profiled, but once they find out who I am, then the tension drops and it doesn't make me happy. It makes me sad because African-American men in at-risk contexts don't have the privilege of being a very well-known pastor and a former NFL player. And so what we like to say is this for Christians, treat everybody like Jesus died for them because he did. I love it. I love it. That's so important. And what a powerful testimony of the transformation and the power of the gospel. I love it. I love it. Um, you know, as you talk about in your book also, there's so much good stuff to get to as well. But I wanted to come back to something you said early on that I don't know that people naturally put together in the same way that you did, which is happiness and holiness are two sides of the same coin. Talk yeah. a little bit more about that, because I don't know that people would naturally put those two together. No, so so let's let's do some definitions first, right? So we've looked at happiness. Happiness happiness is becoming someone. So when we look at the Beatitudes, Jesus lists those beautiful eight characteristics like peacemaker, humble, uh, I mean, poor in spirit, hungering for uh, righteousness, right? And so Happiness is becoming someone, and what you become is a whole person, which means holiness. Holiness at its best means this. I am set apart for God, and God's will for my life is love God, love self, love neighbor. And so the characteristics of the blessed life or happy life, the good life, is you become holy. So holiness and happiness are two sides of the same coin, because when you're being transformed on the inside, what happens on the outside doesn't determine you anymore. So often our happiness is determined by external factors, and what Jesus is proposing, your happiness will be determined by an internal, eternal factor himself. Yeah, no, that's so good because those go together because it's what God's doing. He's conforming us to the image of his son, Romans eight twenty nine. He's, you know, he's doing those things and those we're going to flourish when we best and most clearly cooperate with who he's made us to be. And those things go together. So I love, I love how you make that connection. So it's not just this simple emotionalism or satisfaction no. by desires or pleasure only or comfort or something like that. It's, it's something way, way deeper connected in a, in a groove with who God made us to be. And, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Arrhenius, like 1,900 years ago, our early church father said this, man is most satisfied when God is glorified, and God is glorified when man is most satisfied. And so what I'm trying to get people to do is to move beyond using Jesus to actually worshiping and living from Jesus's life, that the person you are meant to be is he's inviting you to experience that good life. And so 
man, when we're happy in God, we become holy. When we're holy, we're experiencing happiness. And it's a better happiness than just something that's temporary. It's uh, eternal and internal because it's rooted in Christ. Absolutely. And and I love that. And it can be applied in so many different ways. But, you know, you, you get to pastor a congregation. And I'd love for you just even pastorally right now to speak to the people. I mean, we're in the midst of, you know, COVID-19. All of these different circumstances have affected people deeply. Maybe they've lost jobs. Maybe they've lost livelihoods or a loved one or or, dis, or distant from people they wish they could be close to or, you know, any host of things that circumstantially are not going well. Speak to them and what the good life offers as they listen to this right now amidst just this season we're in with this COVID-19 and everything around it. Yeah, the first thing that I would say is this, is that when Jesus said these words, it was in the first century ancient Israel where starvation, lack of water, Roman oppression, disease, plagues, leprosy, all of that was present. All of it was there. Sometimes we often think like our time in history is the worst time in history, but I want us to pause here. So my, my wife's grandfather was born in 1914. So that means that he experienced World War I, the Great Depression, World War II. He also experienced the Spanish flu, where 500 million people around the world were infected and 50 million died. Mm. So let's keep it in perspective. I think that oftentimes our financial prosperity in America, like even our poor is rich compared to say Calcutta, India, where I've been and ministered in the slums, like compared to them, I didn't grow up poor. I actually had a house. These people lived in a garbage dump where they took garbage and made somewhere to live. And so I think the first thing is we have become so accustomed to so much that we have lost an aspect of spiritual toughness. Now, let me pause here and say this. I believe that we're now at 70,000 Americans have died of COVID-19 related illness. That's since March. This is May. So in eight weeks, 70,000 people have died. The hospitals are overrun. So, so this is serious. So my first thing that I would do is for people who've lost loved ones is I would pray for them. I would say, I'm sorry. So we have to experience a time of grief. We have to experience a time of lament. That's why chapter two of my book is called Happy or the Sad. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. It's like when we learn to lament, when we learn to grieve, something powerful takes place. One, we have solidarity with people who are hurt. Two, we have solidarity with Jesus who was hurt on the cross. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, he's a man acquainted with suffering. Three, it makes us long for the new heavens and new earth. And four, it mobilizes us to be hope in a time of disbelief and hurt. It mobilizes us to do good in a time that people are hurting. And so we have to process the shock, the disbelief, we have to grieve. Now, let me, this is so important as Americans, we're so like, be positive. Grief is positive because you're not denying reality. If you dismiss grief, we forfeit growth. Hmm. 
There's a reason why Jesus says, blessed are happier those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You can't be comforted by God if you ignore the pain. Wherever you go, you take that pain with you, so it's better to sit in grief and allow Jesus to heal it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so what we're doing is we're feeding as a church about 325 people a week through our mobile food pantry. Once or twice a week, we are doing something called Healthcare Heroes, where we're going to local hospitals and we feed them Chick-fil-A and we do a parade with banners and signs and we honk horns and let them know that we appreciate them and love them. And we are preaching the gospel. We, we, are, we are letting people know, listen, we don't know when you're going to die or how you can die, but we can let you know that while you're alive, you can be with the one who will never leave you nor forsake you, that you'll have a new resurrection body that's guaranteed. And so our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Hmm. I love that. That's so good. Well, thanks for your leadership there and, and just the way you're influencing and loving people well. It's so encouraging to see and hear. Um, you know, there's so oh, time flies, right? But there's so many, so much good stuff in this book. I want to talk about a couple last things, but, you know, I'm interviewing Dr. Derwin Gray. The book is The Good Life. You definitely need to go uh, pick yourself up a copy. But in, in the chapter that deals with persecution, one of the things you talk about and you say this, you know, we live in a, we live in a post-Christian culture, and that means that, you know, our culture no longer shares a lot of the same assumptions about reality, about God, biblical authority, truth, any of those kind of things. And they've kind of taken the Christian vision, which ultimately would end with the restoration of all things, and then you, you strip that away and you've got now a secular vision where we're going to do that without God or reference to God. But you make a statement where you say, I believe our post-Christian culture is a fertile environment for the church in America to experience revival. And, and I, yeah. agree with, I agree with you, but, but say more about that. Well, so what happens is, is when you get a privileged position, so like, for example, many Americans only know one language, English. But when you leave the country and you go to other countries, there are people that speak two languages, three, sometimes four. And most people speak English around the world, so Americans really don't have to learn another language per se. And so that privilege actually shrinks our capacity to be learners and to be students. So in a post-Christian culture, when the church is pushed out of the margins and we lose privilege, it actually makes us seek Jesus more fervently. It makes us more innovative and creative. And then thirdly, it kind of, it separates the wheat and the tares because frankly, it, it doesn't cost you anything to be a Christian in the United States of America per se. Right. And, and so, and I know there are going to be people that give me some pushback and say, well, they took prayer out of schools. And my response is, well, you do know when prayer was in school, Jim Crow laws existed, schools were segregated, black people couldn't vote, women could barely vote. Uh, When there were prayer in schools, let's remember that there were two great awakenings in America, and slavery outlasted both of those great awakenings. So just maybe, just maybe people were like, well, you're praying in schools, but what's really changing? And so I think this post-Christian culture is going to push us so far to the margins that we need Jesus, and then people are going to see something authentic. 
They're going to see something real, a tangible difference. Why? Because we no longer have those privileges. So, so for example, and this may be a tad bit controversial, but so often because we've had privilege, we've had power, we've had status as the church, primarily the white church, and thus we've had political clout. Well, that's going to start to wane. And what we're dependent on politicians to do, Jesus is going, no, I want the church to be able to do it. Why can't the church develop free health care clinics? Why can't the church feed the hungry, clothe the naked? Why can't the church have mental health resources? We have outsourced what God has called the church to do to the government. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because you have that opportunity for the church to be the church where in some ways, you know, ever since, honestly, in, in some ways, since since Constantine and the early church, when church and state and a lot of that stuff got intertwined in different ways, that's different legacies of that, different implications of that have gone yeah. through the years. And, and now in some ways, those are being kind of unraveled in ways and separated in ways that, that many generations haven't experienced of Christ followers. And so, yeah, you, you know, and, and, and for your audience, so like when I went to Germany a few years back to minister, you know, there's not very many born-again believers in Germany. However, there are a lot of empty church buildings because there's a government state tax that keeps the churches open like museums. And what happened was hundreds of years ago, the church and the government, in essence, got into bed together and it made the church sterile. The church lost her power because she began to have, well, I'll just let politics do it. And so the gospel wasn't even preached. It was lost. And so I'm afraid that when we try to marry politics to a certain brand of Christianity, what's going to happen is politics is going to make us sterile. And so I think it's important that as we're being pushed to the margins, you know, things like, man, we can't even pray at school. And I'm like, so let me get this right. So they can crawl into your brain and make you not pray. Hmm. You know, one of, one of the most powerful things that we've done at Transformation Church is we have adopted five public schools, and this is what we do. Over the last 10 years, we've made 143,000 backpack meals so poor kids can eat over the weekend. We have teacher appreciation parties, and we do tutoring. And from that, we've seen teachers and students and families come to Christ, and those schools are absolutely flourishing. And so what I want to say is, no, God has not been taken out of the public schools. We have been looking to do things that was almost like we're going to politically arm wrestle you versus I'm going to quietly and go about loving and serving and allowing my good deeds to display my good God, which then earns me the right to share the good news. Mm. I love it. I love it. So good. So good. Well, this has been such a fruitful and rich conversation. I love, you know, and I want you to, in just a second, I want you to say a little bit about the happiness manifesto and maybe even what a 30 day happiness challenge might look like. But before I do, I want to read this, this line that I love uh, that you wrote uh, towards the end of the good life. And it says that the happiness that Jesus offers is found in being transformed into a kingdom of God kind of person. As we get nearer to the King's heart, we begin to dance to the rhythm of His grace, and His character rubs off on us, and we begin to image forth His glory into the world. This 
is the good life. And then you quote Psalm 1611, one of my all-time favorite passages, says, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. And I just love that language. I love the message of this book. It's so needed. It's timeless. <laughs> God's Word is always relevant. We, we don't need to try to make it relevant. It always is relevant. But say a little bit about kind of that manifesto at the end, maybe what you might challenge moms, dads, students, educators, pastors, leaders, youth pastors listening right now. Like what, what would you challenge them to do with some of this besides go ahead and pick up a copy of The Good Life? Yeah, so basically at the end of the book, I have a happiness manifesto where something like it's a daily affirmation that you read through to just soak and to saturate in this truth. And then I have a 30-day happiness challenge where I challenge you to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 for 30 days straight and just let the Beatitudes just course and pulsate through your veins by the Holy Spirit's power. And also after every chapter, I have a section that's called Marinate on This. It opens with a prayer, and then it's reflection questions and then things to remember. And so at heart, I'm a football coach disguised as a pastor, and so I want to inspire, <laughs> I want to educate, and I want to give you practical tools. And so I really want this book to be a movement and a resource that people can use for years to come. And I believe that those tools and resources will help. And here's something that's really cool. I just found out that Lifeway is selling my book at a 50% discount. So you can get it for $8.99. Lifeway is selling the good life at a 50% discount. So you can get two for the price of one, four for the price of two, three for the price of six. It is absolutely bonkers. So uh, make sure you jump on that. So go to Lifeway and get the book. You can also get the good life at any book distributor. It's gonna be everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage our our audience, if you're listening right now, whether you're uh, walking around the yard or on a treadmill or exercise bike or just, you know, driving around, whatever you're doing, I'd encourage you to grab a copy and then, but really to apply this to really be renewed and, and, and have our vision of the good life match up with what Jesus said the good life is and not what our culture has come to teach us is what is normal <laughs> about certain desires and yeah. assumptions about reality. And so, and if you're listening to this and you want your young person, your student to be discipled and equipped to engage a world like this and have a vision of the good life like this, I want to encourage you to check out impact360.org. We have summer experiences, but also in the fall, we have our fellows, which is our nine-month gap year. There's still some spots open, so I encourage you to apply for that at impact360.org. As an institute, we want to come alongside you and equip this next generation. We want to cultivate leaders who follow Jesus and live out this good life that, that Dr. Derwin Gray has been talking about today. So there's going to be links to the book in the show notes. Definitely encourage you to check that out. So much more we could have talked about. This has flown by. But Derwin, thank you so much for, for being with us today on this podcast, for writing this book, for sharing your story, and for really teaching us about the good life. Hey, thank you, brother. It means tons. It is an honor to be with you guys, and I look forward to being with you in the fall. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. No 
B. Live. 